morning, Jess. Morning, Cece. How are you today? I'm okay. Yeah? Yeah. You excited for December? No. Why not? Oh, you don't have to get into it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited for December. I'm not. That's when all my cozy traditions really solidify themselves. So that's when looking forward to it. My life turns into chaos for two months. Oy. <laughs> I guess I don't envy that. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I have all the holiday things, and then all the birthdays in January. That's true. Yeah, you've got a bunch of, like, beginning of the New Year birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> and all the December birthdays. <laughs> well, before we get into all of the holiday craziness, I figured we could talk about a haunted asylum, because I think you've got some more, like, thematic stuff coming up. I do. After this. Yes. But I figure before we get into the thematic stuff... Which I hope people are going to enjoy. I enjoy it. I hope so. (laughs) I'm moving my mic closer to me, so sorry if my audio changes a little bit. But yeah, I figured before we jumped into all of that, we could talk about the Trans-Allegheny Asylum. Okay. Are you excited? I like asylums. This is one of those places that is on my, like, to visit list. Where is it? It is in West Virginia. Okay. So... South of the Mason-Dixon line, I discovered. But yeah, not all that far, honestly. I think it's probably only a couple more hours longer than our last trip. Mm. I'm pretty sure that I drove through like a corner of West Virginia when we drove to Florida. That makes sense. I could be wrong, though. I don't know. I didn't do the driving. I did the (laughs) watching Netflix on my phone, not paying attention to the road. (laughs) I am far too anxious to do that, even if somebody else is driving. But I applaud that. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess we will start with an overview of the hospital. Then we'll go into the history because this, I think at least for my non-historical loving self, this actually has kind of a neat history of the hospital and kind of how it was built. And I mean, like most hospitals and asylums from the late 1800s and early to mid 1900s, it kind of falls into a lot of the same patterns of Mm -hmm. overcrowding and abuse and things like that, which is really kind of horrific and not as interesting. I know that we had a couple like episodes set up that we never ended up like doing for whatever reason. Have we talked about an asylum yet? We talked about the Taunton state hospital. Yes, we did. And this one kind of has similar things going on to that one. It's history. I think is a bit more interesting because it also, happened like it was being built during the civil war which i think was kind of neat Mm. i've got some stuff about what's going on there today and then we can discuss whether or not it is haunted because i think unlike some of the other things we've discussed in episodes this one's got like a few ghosts with like names and backstories and yeah i was like i'm excited i'm not entirely sure i believe in ghosts but i like a good ghost with a backstory (laughs) so I was pretty excited about that. So I guess for just kind of some overview things, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which is what it was originally called, I will also sometimes refer to it as the Weston State Hospital. Mm -hmm. Its name got changed at one point in its history. And since it has been reopened as a tourist attraction, they've gone back to calling it the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Okay. I think because it's kind of... Got a connotation. Yes. (laughs) 
So it was a Kirkbride psychiatric hospital that operated from 1864 to 1994, which was like way more recent than I would have thought. That was like one of the ones that that I did the research for that we never ended up putting out there that maybe we'll go back to at some point. That was open a lot longer than I anticipated it to be. You never would have expected they were open as far as the 90s. Mm -hmm. This one is in Weston, West Virginia. And was kind of, I think it was government run. But like the Taunton State Hospital that we talked about and many of my favorite hospitals (laughs) from the late 1800s, this was My favorite hospitals. It's my favorite hospital style. I I am obsessed (laughs) with the Kirkbride plan and I kind of can't explain it, but I love it. To refresh, I know we talked about it in our Taunton State Hospital Mm -hmm. episode, but the Kirkbride plan is kind of this main building with two wings that kind of come out and flare out in a staggered formation, kind of like a bat wing. And they were created to optimize airflow and sunlight for the patients with the thought that to help somebody become better, they like having sunlight, having fresh air, being on a large plot of land that is mostly self-sustainable and kind of giving these patients something to do with their time was kind of the best way to help them recover. I mean, I I can see it. In theory, it's a wonderful idea. In practice, I don't think it worked ever. No. But this was built in that type of format. It got its name Weston State Hospital in 1913, but was originally commissioned as the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, as I mentioned. It is built in the Gothic Revival and Tudor Revival styles by a Baltimore architect named Richard Snowden Andrews. It was constructed, I, this, I feel like it's just like a list of facts. This is my overview. That's okay. I um, like facts. <laughs> it was constructed from 19, or excuse me, from 1858 to 1881. And construction was halted during some of that time because of the Civil War, which we will talk about a bit more in the history, but it kind of became a contentious plot of land during the Civil War. It was claimed to have the hospital be one of the largest hand-cut stone masonry buildings in the U.S. and allegedly, assumedly, rumored, whatever word you want to use, it's the second largest in the world next to the Kremlin. Which is the Kremlin? Russian government. Okay. (laughs) But I thought that was kind of an interesting little factoid. I wasn't sure where else to put it. So I was like, we can put that in the overview. It was like hand cut stone. Like people actually. Correct. Yeah. They had like a team of stonemasons. That's, that's too much work for me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm like, it's probably gorgeous, but that's a lot of work. The hospital was originally designed to hold 250 people, which is relatively low compared to its peak population in the 1950s that was almost 10 times that number. It sounds right. Sounds right for the history of uh, mental hospitals in the United States. The hospital was forcibly closed in 1994 after a series of events that we will discuss in more depth in the history of it. Okay. And it remained abandoned until 2007 when it was purchased at auction by a gentleman named Joe Jordan who opened it and has been working toward restoring it and 
has it like as a tourist attraction at this point. You can go and take tours and things like that. Mm-hmm. Other factoid I had in the overview before we jump a bit more in depth into the history of the hospital was that it was designated as a National Historic Landmark in 1990 which I thought was interesting because it was still open at the time. Yeah, that is interesting. But I think at that point it had been there for like over 100 years. So yeah, I think they kind of recognized that the architecture and things like that, less, less so what was going on in it, but mm-hmm. like it was worth kind of preserving. So those are the overview. <laughs> now we'll get a bit more in depth into what was going on. Okay. So in the early night... Uh, keep saying 1900s it's, and it's definitely the 1800s in the early 1850s the virginia general assembly was discussing wanting to build a hospital in this area and kind of the economic boost that it would give to the area and things like that they wanted to build this asylum so they get in touch with thomas kirkbride who at this time is the superintendent for the pennsylvania hospital for the insane He's the guy that came up with the Kirkbride plan. He's got this idea. They work with him and the architect. And they. Oh, and the architect is also known for doing the governor of Maryland's residence and the south wing of the U.S. Treasury building in the Washington, D.C. Okay. So he's like a well-known architect. They get together with Kirkbride, who's got this idea for mm-hmm. hospitals, and they come together and decide that they're going to build this. And like I said... Kirkbride's got this idea of how to holistically care for patients that he thinks is a great idea. Virginia's like, yep, that sounds great. They get together. And obviously, like most asylums, like we said, this doesn't last long. Before long, there's controversial therapies. There's different medications and treatments going on that would be considered anything but this like holistic, humane approach. Yeah. But it started off with good intentions. As most things do. Right. Road to hell, paved with good <laughs> intentions. So they begin construction on the site in 1858. And initially, the work is conducted by prison laborers, which I guess tells you a lot about the state of our prison system at that time. Which, fun fact, Jess and I took a trip to the Eastern State Penitentiary and learned a lot about the history of prisons. And at this point, now that fact does not surprise me <laughs> that it was built by prison laborers. No, not at all. Eventually, they called in skilled stonemasons from Germany and Ireland to continue the work. And I think that's kind of where that hand-cut stone thing came from. So they get to work on this. And a couple of years into the construction, they're interrupted by the American Civil War. So the parts of the hospital at that point that were completed, which is the southern wing of the asylum at this point ends up being used as army barracks. Mm -hmm. And I should have done a double check. So Virginia seceded from the U.S. during the Civil War. Okay. They were like, they were with the South. So because that happened, West Virginia kind of becomes this contentious space. And the government of Virginia demanded the return of the hospital's unused construction funds because the construction was put on hold and they needed it for their defense. So they're going like, we're leaving, we're leaving the United States. 
give us this money because we're leaving. It's our money. Mm-hmm. So before the, So, sorry. That's I'm all right. Confused. Why was Virginia funding the West Virginia hospital? So I'm, I'm thinking this, and I, I should look into this. I probably could, like, pause our recording and do it. Maybe I should. I think at this point, West Virginia is kind of not its own thing. Oh, yet. okay. It seems like they're kind of the same situation at this point. They're in a situationship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, but before this happens, Ohio's volunteer infantry seizes the money from the bank. Got like some bank robbery going. Uh-oh. And they put that money toward the, an establishment called the Reorganized Government of Virginia, which is part of Virginia that's siding with the North Okay. during this time. So the Reorganized Government is like, we're going to keep building our building. That's what this money was for. So after like a year or so of fighting over what's going on with this and the construction being stalled, the construction continues again. So that goes on for about a year. And then after that, the Civil War ends and the West Virginia is admitted into the U.S. as a state. So I don't know if that was my non-historical self. I don't know if that was the beginning of West Virginia as a state. Okay, because that would make sense. I should look into that. I'm... I was very prepared with the history of this and not very prepared with the history of the Civil War. But West Virginia becomes a state. And once the West Virginia becomes a state, they briefly change the name of the hospital to the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane. Mm-hmm. And in October of 1864, the first patients were admitted into the hospital. I found one source that I could not corroborate, but... It was interesting, nonetheless, that said that the very first patient was a housewife who had domestic trouble. And it said that the reason uh, some of the reasons for some of the first patients that were admitted were things like grief, brain congestion, feebleness of intellect, seduction, and my favorite novel reading. I mean, I guess we should go I lock would, ourselves right up. I would right be up. there. And, you know, if you want to lock me up so I can read for 16 hours a day. I mean, I'm pretty sure if you were in there for novel reading, they would not then give you novels to read. I, that's true. I didn't consider it that way, but you're right. I would be admitted. So from there, construction continues. They've been they've kind of, they're taking in patients because mm-hmm. one wing is done, but they're still like continuing to work. And construction continues until 1881, which totaled a cost of $725,000, which was over $300,000 more than they originally budgeted for that. Also sounds right for like prisons right? and asylums <laughs> of the time and their budgets. Correct. A couple of other just bullet points of when other things around there were completed. The clock tower, which is 200 feet tall, has a giant clock. It's at the pinnacle of kind of the the apex of the building, like the center mm-hmm. main point where the administration stuff is, was completed in 1871. A lot of sources noted that in 1873, separate rooms for basically anyone who wasn't white was completed. We are in the time of segregation at this Mm -hmm. point, unfortunately. So that was completed in 1973. 
And like we mentioned before, as most Kirkbride plans, this hospital was intended to be self-sufficient. So Mm -hmm. they had a farm. They had like a dairy farm going on as well. They had waterworks. They had a cemetery. There was a coal mine nearby that supplied their heat and fuel. They made their own clothing and curtains and furniture. Like the Mm -hmm. whole thing was very much... Its own little its community. Its own little community, yeah. And the patients kind of played some hand in some of this. And it was very much, at least in the beginning, the ideal of what a Kirkbride should have been. Mm-hmm. So I made a note here in my notes about some other reasons that patients were admitted, because some of them are a little lax, in my opinion. <laughs> and I think... It kind of, when you talk about the reasons that people were admitted, I think it really paints a clear picture of how overpopulation was so mm-hmm. easy to happen. Yeah. So there were patients who were admitted for things like asthma, laziness, egotism, domestic troubles. That seems to be an umbrella term for a lot of them. Yeah. Greediness was one. Women who did not listen to their husbands, like insubordination, tuberculosis, which of all of the reasons feels like a legitimate reason to go to a hospital, although not a not mental a hospital. Mental, no, I did make. I was going to say asthma for a mental hospital. I'm confused. So I think there were like well, lots of light and air. Like I think it was kind of that same idea of like taking your ill wife to the ocean, kind of thing. Like the salt air will cure her, or like. What was it in the in our first episode about Marcy Brown when her brother went off to Colorado for fresh air? Exactly. Yeah, I think they kind of thought the same thing. And I did. I have somewhere in my notes. I'm sure I will come across it while we're talking. They did at some point build like a whole tuberculosis ward as well. Like that became a pretty common reason why they were receiving people. Mm-hmm. There were also things like laziness, religious enthusiasm, menopause, superstition. And really, we were also in a period of time where men could pretty much drop off their wives for any reason they wanted. Sounds right. Um, some sources I found sorted like uh, cited things like if they wanted to have their time with their way with their mistress and wanted their wife out of the way, they would just like drop their wife off for a while. Oh, kind of gross. I don't know how legitimate that is, but. <laughs> Domestic problems, things like that, hysteria, all kinds of common reasons to... Floating uterus. Yeah, to kind of (laughs) drop a person off. And at one point, one source I found said that, like, to kind of start, they were, like, offering cash to people to drop, like, patients off. I don't know how true that was either. I feel like that's a strange... That felt like a weird claim to me. Especially because it went over budget and building. So like, where is this cash coming from? Yeah, I had I had a similar And aren't you supposed to pay people to take on your... Like, I was like, it feels like like this isn't a place that you'd want a finder's fee. No. Like, (laughs) so I don't know how true that was. But one source had made a comment about it. In 1913, the name was changed again to the Weston State Hospital, which is the name that it maintained until it closed. Mm Mm-hmm. Over the years, oh, this might I think this is where I talked about the tuberculosis building. It was <laughs> it was established in 1930. So they built a bunch of other side buildings mm-hmm. throughout the course of the was tuberculosis time that was here. like really a big thing still in the 1930s? I think so. Huh. Yeah. I don't know why that felt like an 18 17 1800s thing to me. I think by the 1930s it was 
better controlled, but I think it was still a thing. Okay. In fact, there's a cele- fun fact, completely <laughs> unrelated. There is a celebrity chef right now that had tuberculosis as a child. Huh. And he sometimes talks about it when he's like on different shows. And I'm like, oh, that's so weird. Insane. Anyway, okay. side note, over time, things happened to the buildings as well. Things like at one point, patients had lit a fire on the fourth floor. Surprisingly, no one died. But like things would happen over time where parts needed to be rebuilt as well. Mm-hmm. So, originally, a couple of facts about the population. (laughs) Originally designed for 250 patients, by 1880, so before construction was even done, they had 717 patients. By the late 1930s, they had about 1,600 patients. And by the 1950s, where it was at its peak, it had 2,600 people. That's so many people. In a hospital designed for 250. That's too many people. That's way too many people. (laughs) (laughs) I saw, and I couldn't find it, and I'm like kind of bummed that I couldn't find it. But there was an expose written in 1949 by the Charleston Gazette, where they talked about how... The hospital at that point mostly housed, quote, epileptics, alcoholics, drug addicts, and non-educatable mental defectives. Not my word, words of the time. Mm -hmm. They also exposed the hospital at that point for poor sanitation and insufficient furniture, which is not surprising. Like, you've got, like, more than (laughs) 10 times the amount of people that this building was set up for. So, unsurprising. And they also mentioned in that expose that the wing that had been rebuilt from the fire started by the patient was luxurious in comparison to the rest of the asylum. Oh. Like, how, how when was the fire? Like, how long uh, after? 1935. Okay. So, so, I mean, it's been, like, 50 years. So I exactly. See like, why it's everything in it's going to be a little updated. Yeah. And ultimately, like many of the hospitals of the time... Despite the fact that there were, like, horrible and horrifying treatments going on that they thought were, like, top of the line for the time, the real downfall of these hospitals and really the really horrific thing about them was how overcrowded they got. And once they got overcrowded, the staff wasn't able to keep up with them. Mm -hmm. The sanitation wasn't kept up with. There are reports of, like, people going in to visit family members, although most people did not come back to visit family members. But just of, like, feces on the walls in the bathroom and just completely, like, just horrifyingly unsanitary conditions. And they think that a large number of the deaths at the asylum have to do with poor sanitation. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, and if you did a procedure on someone and they're trying to recover from that and there's poor sanitation, I feel like you've got like a a perfect storm of not good. Yeah. You have an open wound being exposed to unsanitary conditions causing an infection. Yeah. It just like is not a good time. And one source I found cited a Weston State Hospital historian named Titus Swan, who estimates that the number of people that died due to improper care and lack of sanitation is probably a five-figure number, That's which is really gross. like a sobering figure to think about. Mm-hmm. And 
so on top of this poor sanitation, by the time the 1950s rolled around, as kind of an attempt to curb overcrowding, which is going to sound super backwards once <laughs> I finish the sentence, the Weston State Hospital becomes home for the West Virginia Lobotomy Project. I think they think it will curb okay. overcrowding because I think they think once they get these patients into kind of a a more sedated state that they can send them home, mm-hmm. I think is the thought process behind it. I mean, okay. It's, it's a gross thought process and it's kind of this dark point in America's medical history where like lobotomies were the go-to thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's gross. Like, I'm not going to go into the details of a lobotomy because I think it makes a lot of people squirm. But like, I feel like it's kind of the equivalent of being like, well, I need you to sleep. So I'm going to bash you over the head with something like it's it's not really a solution. To, I mean, it solves the problem, but it's not like it creates more problems a good solution during to the, the solution. Problem. Yeah. If you're interested in transorbital lobotomies, that's an interesting rabbit hole to go down, but really kind of a horrifying one. But Dr. Walter Freeman, who we did talk about in the Taunton State Hospital episode, popularized the procedure and brought it to the Weston State Hospital, where he conducted lobotomies for $25 a patient and encouraged crowds to watch while he did them. He was, like, very proud of this new medical procedure he had Yeah, he would have, like, doctors and nurses come in and sit and watch. Yeah. And just the general public, if I remember correctly. (laughs) Which is, I mean... And unfortunately, I mean, the lobotomies were leaving a lot of people unable to even, like, perform basic bodily care Mm -hmm. for themselves. And a lot of people died during them. They really... They're irreversible, which doesn't help. And they really were very terrible. One and fact some of them, I think they would do like two or three times if they well, but like didn't, didn't get it, it right yeah, but the like first didn't time. work the first time. We both just air quoted for those of you not in the room with us. But yeah, the, it was, it was ugh, I don't know, like it like sends shivers down my spine even just to think about. Mm. And a fact about lobotomies I found was that in 1952, one doctor alone performed 228 of them in the course of two weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that feels like an overdiagnosis. Yeah, that's excessive. Yeah. And I think ultimately that probably leads to the building of the morgue in 1960 on the premises. It took till 1960 to put a morgue there. I kind of thought the same thing. I'm like, you have this asylum that's been overpopulated since before you even finished building it. Mm. And you managed to go that long without a morgue. Hmm. Um, I don't, I don't want to think more about that. No, no. not at all. Um, they do have a cemetery <laughs> on the premises and like most mid century hospitals, the cemetery grave markers are just patient numbers. Mm-hmm. And at this point, a lot of them have been moved or buried or knocked down. Like, there's, there's like, not even any way to know who's buried in these cemeteries anymore, which is a real tragedy. So that kind of brings us up to, like, the mid to late 1900s. By the 1980s, the hospital population had begun to decline, which we 
so we've kind of seen in a couple of different ones. It seems mm-hmm. like by the 80s, what constituted mental illness changed, the treatments for them changed. You kind of couldn't just go and have somebody put in an asylum because they were reading novels and not <laughs> obeying their husbands. Things like that shifted. So it kind of made sense that the population would start mm-hmm. to decline. But I think at this point, it's still overpopulated for the capacity it was still supposed to hold. Yeah, it was still more than it was built for. And because of that, like I found a note that toward the 1980s, if there were uncontrollable patients, they would throw them in solitary confinement or lock them in cages. Like we've just, oh. we've kind of by this point, despite the declining population, I think kind of the the humanity has been lost in this situation. Hmm. Sounds it. So in February of 1986, the then governor, Arch Moore, announced plans to build a new psychiatric facility elsewhere in the state. And he wanted to convert Weston Hospital to a prison, which I think says a lot about how it was how built. it was well maybe less about how it was built but at least how it was being treated at I this mean, point that yeah that too so he authorizes work to begin on this and then it becomes a statewide discussion which ultimately the state decides that this is like kind of unconstitutional to take this building where like there are, are people trying to be cared for and turn it into a prison so they suspended it I mean, but they were building, like, another institution to transfer them to. They they were. I'm not quite sure okay. the details of it. I didn't look super far into it, if I'm honest. <laughs> it kind of, in terms of the history of this place, I was like, that's just another weird blip of things going on. Mm-hmm. But they suspend work on converting it to a prison. And ultimately, a couple years later, in 1992, they kind of get the final nail in the coffin of what's going on with the asylum. And Charleston Gazette, once again, writes another expose, and I looked all over newspapers.com and could not find these. And I'm like so bummed that I couldn't. But the Charleston Gazette writes another expose talking about the just horrendous conditions that are occurring inside this hospital. And during that expose, discussed a patient named George Edward Bodie who died in a fight with another patient. And another patient named Brian Scott B, who committed suicide and his body was not found for eight days. Mm. And this is not like, it's unfortunate that it had to come down to an expose for this to become public knowledge because mm-hmm. throughout the history of the hospital, patients fighting each other, patients killing each other, like, not really news unfortunately like it was just it was a thing that was happening and i think unfortunately when you have people that are really desperately in need of care and are living in essentially squalor and there's way too many of them and you're living on top of each other Mm -hmm. and there's not enough staff and there's not enough staff it really like it kind of feels like the natural consequence unfortunately but i think that this expose from the charleston gazette really shined the magnifying glass on it. Right, for people that weren't, like, living it. Exactly. And that kind of put the nail in the coffin. So the William R. Sharp Jr. Hospital, which was also built in Weston, was completed. And so the Weston State Hospital ended up closing in May of 1994. 
And the closure was not just because this new hospital had been built, but also due to a court order because of a class action lawsuit filed by the family members of patients after this Gazette Mm -hmm. expose came out. I mean, you put your family members there. Yeah, I don't... Did we not tour this place? I don't don't think so. But ultimately, it, like, it makes sense. I don't know. If you found out that's where your family member was living, like, I would be really horribly upset at myself and the situation. But so in May of 1994, it closes its doors. And from there, it's mostly just been vacant. Mm -hmm. In 1999, the... This is kind of like a... I guess a not so fun fact, ultimately, but I found it on one of the sources I was looking into and it kind of made me chuckle. In 1999, all four floors of the interior were damaged because a handful of off-duty cops decided to use the building to play paintball. Oh. I was like, that's interesting choice. (laughs) Evidently, because it had already been declared a national historic place, the source I found said that at least three of the police officers involved were dismissed over the incident. <laughs> I mean, good for... Goes to show you yeah. maybe you shouldn't go into a historical building and play paintball. I mean, you should probably play paintball at a paintball field or like I mean, a venue. yeah. <laughs> In other attempts to reuse the building, because I think... The building is the historic thing, but you can still reuse these historic buildings for other things as long as you kind of maintain Mm -hmm. the historical elements of it. So over the years, they tried to convert it into a Civil War museum, which it was briefly in 2004 before it was forced to close because of fire code violations. They tried to convert it into a hotel. They thought about trying to make it into a golf course complex because it is on acres of land. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the Kirkbride plan. And ultimately... Probably would have turned it into like a resort of some sort. That would work too. Yeah, I think they were kind of... I think that was kind of the same line of thinking with the hotel was Mm -hmm. a place people could stay. But ultimately in August 29th, on August 29th of 2007... It's not Michael Jackson's birthday. I have no idea. How do you know that? I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's Michael Jackson's birthday. (laughs) No idea. But on that date, the hospital was auctioned off by the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources. And an asbestos demolition contractor named Joe Jordan, who we mentioned earlier, paid $1.5 million as the highest bidder for the 242,000 square foot building. And he was like... I'm going to restore this building and we are going to raise money to do it with tours. So to this day, they are only open from, I think like May to November. Like I, when I was looking at their website the other day, they had already closed for this season. Hmm. They're only open during the warmer weather months, which makes me wonder if it's kind of like the Eastern state penitentiary where it's maybe not heated. Mm But I think or Eastern if, State is open year-round. Or he just does all of his work on it in the winter. Not entirely sure. But it is open for short historical tours. They offer longer paranormal tours, as well as overnight paranormal stays that are from Ooh. like 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. That sounds fun. Which a lot of people who have witnessed hauntings have experienced them on these overnights. 
they throw a gala every Halloween to raise money. So he's he's kind of doing these things to not only raise money to keep the place restored and safe for people to visit, but also to allow people to learn about the history of the hospital as well as kind of enjoy some of the spookier elements of it as mm-hmm. well. Because with over 2,000 people buried in the on-site cemetery and the stories of so many people dying on the premises, it is not surprising that people believe the Weston State Hospital to be haunted. Which leads me to the next section in my notes that says, is it haunted? Is it haunted? Sources say yes. So... I'm super excited to talk about the haunted bits because as we know through listening to me for a couple of seasons now, (laughs) I love a great named ghost with a backstory. I don't love orbs and creepy sounds and disembodied voices. I want to hear about like that ghost Jack that roams the hall. That was like my favorite kind. Mm -hmm. And we have some of those here at the Trans-Allegheny Asylum. I'm excited. So I wanted to start with, in general, a lot of the ghostly and supernatural happenings that people claim to witness are kind of the standard things you would assume for such a creepy old building with a really horrendous history of death. Mm -hmm. People claim to see ghostly figures walking through hallways at night, shadowy figures during the day, moving balls of light and orbs. Uh, Some people claim to see ghostly figures. Other people hear doors slamming. There have been workers who have been working on restoration that refuse to go in after a few days because they (laughs) keep hearing, like, gurneys rolling around down hallways where there aren't any. No. People feel cold spots. People pick up things on their EVP meters. Lots of, like... All the generic haunted stuff Mm -hmm. happens here. And things like screaming from electroshock rooms and moans and hysterical laughter. Like, if you you can name it as generic (laughs) haunted thing, it it happens here. So maybe if those are things that actually happen when there are ghosts present, this place has got it. A couple of violent events that happened before I get into the ghosts that might be contributing to some of the haunted occurrences alongside some of the ones we've kind of already mentioned. In one room, a man was stabbed 17 times by another patient. There are other rooms where patients committed suicide by hanging themselves from curtain rods. Some of the shadowy figures have been seen along with EVP capturing voices saying, get out, which I was like, oh, that might creep me out a bit. Over the course of the time that the hospital was in operation, many of the employees reported being attacked while on duty by patients and things like that. Going so far as to one nurse who went missing and was later found, like her body was found rotting at the base of an unused staircase and she'd been there for months. So like... There was just the staircase that nobody ever used for anything. That's what I said. I was like, where is in this such a, staircase? In like, such an overcrowded building. Right? I Like it shocked me. But it wasn't, I mean, two months is a long time, 
But, like, there were reports of other people who would die and just nobody would, like, their room wouldn't have been gotten to normally Mm -hmm. enough that anyone would even notice that they had passed away for extended periods of time. The, The nurse was mentioned on a couple of different sites, though, so I figured she was worth kind of bringing up. So there's a couple of, like, generic ghosts who are not entirely named but are kind of regulars around the hospital. Most of them are Civil War soldiers that can be seen strolling the hallways. Was there, I know you said it was like a a barracks, but was there like any kind of battle nearby? So I don't know if there was any, I'm assuming there were battles nearby. I think the reason why there were Civil War ghosts is they had an entire Civil War wing at one point. Okay. That was for people who I think essentially it was like PTSD. Um, that they were treating because they weren't like a medical hospital. Right. But there are reports of soldiers that walk around during this, uh, in like this one wing. One of them named Jacob is said to stroll the hallways. Don't know much about him other than his name. And he likes to take a good walk. Another kind of named, but not really background kind of ghost uh, or apparition is called the creeper. And it's a black, object that seems to crawl along the floor and is usually associated with the sound of banging pipes. Oh. That sounds I was like, fun. Ooh. And then on to the uh, there's a couple of ghosts that do have names that they don't know a ton about, but they seem to be relatively uh benevolent, if you will. There is Nurse Elizabeth, and there is not much known about Elizabeth as far as I can tell. She's not the one that was found at the bottom of the staircase. Mm -hmm. But it says that she wanders from floor to floor. They assume she's trying to take care of patients that need her. But she roams the halls. Doesn't seem to cause much of a problem. There is a ghost named James. When James was a resident at the hospital or a patient at the hospital, he didn't cause much trouble, kind of doesn't have a big backstory because he didn't really do a whole lot. Mm -hmm. But he died of a heart attack in one of the upstairs bathrooms or bathtubs, excuse me. So in that area, you can sometimes hear him crying. Oh, James. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Glad that that was not, I'm not the only one with that reaction. There is said to be, the upper floors are said to be haunted by a apparition that they refer to as Slewfoot. I couldn't find a whole lot about him, but he roams the upper floors where people were killed or tortured in one of these bathrooms. And he haunts the bathroom and the upstairs floor. And now on to the ghosts that have a bit more going on. Okay. <laughs> so I thought it was cool because I was like, there's like a handful of ghosts that all have like names too, which I thought was kind of cool. I know. We don't see too much of that. So Ruth is one of the most prevalent spirits in the hospital. She is in the Civil War wing, which is on the first floor of the building. It's the oldest part of the hospital, which makes sense. The Civil mm-hmm. War happened while it was being built. And she lurks through those hallways. People don't know why, but evidently Ruth hated men. There's some rumors that she was abused by some Civil War soldiers. Nobody really knows the truth of the matter, but Ruth does not like men. Was she a 
she's in the Civil War ward. Was that where she stayed when she was a patient there? I'm not sure. Okay. I couldn't find a whole lot of backstory on most of these ghosts, I'm like, if she dislikes men, why would she be on the Civil War? Well, so I, I almost wonder if she was maybe a nurse maybe. or something like that. But she hates men, and she likes to throw things at them. So people who have wandered through that hall and reported having instances with her spirit have stories of be having, having things thrown at them or being pushed up against walls. Oh. And they usually can hear a whistling sound when they believe that Ruth is around. So it sounds like she meanders around whistling, and if you're a man, she's going to let you know she doesn't like you. Okay, then. So you and I might be safe with Ruth. <laughs> Are we going to take our husbands here for our next trip? <laughs> I mean, maybe not to the Civil War wing, if that's what's going on. I mean... I mean, I like my husband enough that I don't want him to get pushed into a wall. I like my husband enough, too, but I don't think it would be fun. (laughs) I want to actually see some haunting, and if it is at the expense of my husband. So the next two ghosts are both, like, they're, like, the two most prevalent ghosts, the ones that people talk about the most when it comes to the asylum. So another one of the named ghosts on the premises is named Dean. And Dean was a patient at the hospital, and he had a run-in with Big Jim and David Mason. And I could not find, so Big Jim obviously does not have a last name, so I could not (laughs) look him up. I looked up David Mason on newspapers.com, hoping to find something about this, and unfortunately could not find any Mm. information about it. But according to a source that I read, which I think was like a blog post from someone who had just taken the tour, Big Jim and David Mason were like top 10 most dangerous men in this asylum. Like people knew they were not safe to be around. Were they there at the same time? It sounds like it. So they were both accused of murdering Dean. Okay. And it said what had happened was that they attempted to hang Dean with a set of bed sheets. And that did not kill Dean. So when Dean did not die, they cut him down and they put his head under the post of a metal bed frame and jumped on the bed until he was bludgeoned to death. No, thank you. Yeah, which is like really horrifying. I maybe should have like put a trigger warning ahead of that. (laughs) I apologize. And Dean is known as a quiet spirit. He does haunt the room where he passed away. He is very, like, meek. He doesn't bother anybody. But occasionally they believe that the apparitions of Big Jim and David will show up as, like, these dark spirits and apparitions that will show up in this area, these kind of shadowy figures. And when they do, Dean disappears. I would disappear, too. Absolutely. I'm like, poor Dean's getting like traumatized in the afterlife. A lot of people say that if they're in the room and they are experiencing or believed to be experiencing Dean's spirit, there's a relative sense of calm. But once the spirits of Big Jim and David appear, the entire energy in the room shifts and people have reported feeling physically ill Mm. when they appear in the room. So that's the story of Dean. And perhaps the most famous ghost at the Weston State Hospital, while she has maybe 
the most tragic story, in my opinion, she is maybe my favorite ghost at this asylum, was the ghost of Lily. And Lily is the ghost of a nine-year-old girl. There's a couple of different stories about how Lily came to be at the Weston State Hospital. One version says that when she was born, her mother dropped her off, kind of in a I-can't-take-care-of-her kind of way. Mm -hmm. Another version was that her mother was admitted as a patient when she was pregnant. And when she gave birth to Lily, the... What's the word I'm looking for? Um, like the administration kind of took her in and, mm-hmm. and kind of they raised her on the premises. But either way, both legends kind of corroborate that Lily spent most, if not all of her life inside the asylum walls. And she died of pneumonia at the age of nine. So she didn't know any other homes, but she has a room on the fourth floor where people that go to visit will drop off toys and some of her toys are still in the room. And there have been reports of toys missing, candies that people leave for her going missing, different toys moving around the room. There was a report I read about somebody who like a ball rolled toward them, like she just wanted to play. Mm -hmm. She seems to be a very sweet ghost um she sometimes turns on her music box so she's she's kind of a little beloved spirit within the halls of the asylum that's cute which i was like the idea of this poor little girl and i don't know i couldn't find a backstory on her so i don't know what years she lived there i would like to hope she didn't live there when it was insanely overcrowded but it sounds like this. she was just a little girl like living her life. <laughs> so she's maybe my favorite spirit report at the hospital. But so that's mostly what I have for today about the Trans-Allegheny Asylum. And I think whether or not it is actually haunted. So this is this like most haunted places we've talked about has been on like ghost hunters and like mm-hmm. all kinds of paranormal investigators. It is widely regarded as a pretty haunted location mm-hmm. kind of unsurprisingly but I think it's definitely like a sight to see I think just in general the history of quote unquote mental hospitals in the mid-century like mid-1900s in the U.S. is like a dark spot on medical history but I think that there is something kind of fascinating about what remains of the facilities and I think that we're almost as a society kind of responsible to remember these things because a lot of people died really tragic ways Mm -hmm. under the pretension of like seeking medical help. Yes. So I thought it was worth talking about in today's episode. I liked that there were some ghost stories associated with it. And I think it's kind of one of those, I want to be like, it's a bucket list place, but kind of, I think I would like to see it. Yeah. I would like to see it. Um, To tour it and kind of check it out and, and kind of, while acknowledging what a horrifying place it was, kind of Mm -hmm. see what remains. Yeah. So that's my episode on the Trans-Allegheny Asylum. Well, thank you for sharing. Yeah, I think. It had some good information. It's hard to talk about. I think mental health facilities from that time period as well. Like I know, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, we had one that we researched and we didn't end up doing an episode on it. And I think it's hard because the stuff that's horrifying about it 
isn't really the ghosts. Yeah, (laughs) it's not. The stuff that's horrifying about it is just like the inhumane treatment of people who need, you know, more help than they were able to be given, really. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. To me, that's the... It is. It's really sad. And for something that's so well-intentioned, like when these places were created, they were supposed to be there to help people, but we Mm -hmm. didn't have... We don't have like the knowledge that we have now or Yeah, like, or the even understanding kind of, this, of it. The standards of what constitutes putting a person there. Like mm-hmm. there I think there was a time period kind of between the turn of the the eighteenth to nineteenth century and the early nineteen hundreds where like these places were just a place to put people you didn't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of a tragedy and a disservice to the people that had to live through those experiences. And I'm glad that we've kind of come out on the other end in a pretty big way like Mm -hmm. husbands just can't be like you know my wife's not doing it for me you take her for the weekend yeah you take her (laughs) for a while like there's some standards put in place and I think that these things wouldn't exist had the medical community not gone through this Mm -hmm. but like it really is kind of a tragedy to think about like honestly and I think that's kind of something we had discussed when we had so we did Taunton State Hospital, but we've had a couple of other, we did research for Danvers and we did research for the Lad School. And I think ultimately what kind of kept them from being episodes we aired is that, A, they're all really similar. Mm-hmm. They all kind of had the same things happen to them. But also, like we said, like the, the most tragic part of them is like the reality of what historically happened there. Like it's. They're all like, oh, yeah, they're haunted. And it's like, well, they're regarded as haunted because thousands of people died in these spaces. But like... Squalor. Yeah, they they didn't die because there was a massacre. They died just because they were neglected. And it's like... Mm -hmm. It's different. It's it's something that people need to know about, but it's not really a fun thing to, like, make an episode about. Right. So I was kind of glad that this one had some, at least some ghosts to talk about. Mm -hmm. But, Yeah. So that is my episode this week. Uh, I think it's episode nine of season three. And I think we've got some holiday fun in store (laughs) next week. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, if you want to call it it holiday fun. (laughs) It's a holiday legend. It is a Um, holiday legend. I am excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. So am I. Do you have anything else to add for this week before we sign off? I don't think so. All right. Well, thank you for listening to me go on a very long history of a hospital. I'm excited to hear next week's episode to be part of it. (laughs) Thanks for sharing. And I am excited to deliver. So keep an eye out for that. Yes, we will see you all next week. (laughs) Bye.